Welcome to Mostly Books Meets. We're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life, and we hope you'll join us for the journey. In the podcast this week, I'm honoured to be speaking to author Kasim Ali. Kasim has previously had a short story published in The Good Journal and has been longlisted for both the Fourth Estate Bain Short Story Prize and shortlisted for Hachette's Mo Sue Sharon Prize. On the 3rd of March, his debut novel Good Intentions will be published by Fourth Estate. Author Lillian Lee describes it as compelling, emotionally honest and unafraid of the grey areas of race, faith, sexuality and love. It is a beautifully written novel and one that stands out for me for its exquisite rendering of the complex relationships between lovers, family and friends. When he's not writing, Kasim is an assistant editor at Penguin Random House and is currently working on his third novel while he should be editing his second. Kasim Ali, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Thank you. Wow. Hearing that said out loud is is kind of insane, actually. (laughs) I think I'd seen somewhere, I don't know whether it was your twitter talking about how with a debut novel you can know it's happening but until you sort of hear other people talking about it it doesn't quite sink in are you still finding that at the moment yeah 100 percent. i mean fourth estate did this incredible pulling together of the quotes from authors who've yes you know read and supported the book and it was kind of mind-blowing actually to sit there and look at all of these authors who's books I'd read and loved myself and see them talking about my book and then obviously when the finished copies came in it's very surreal I can't quite explain it actually it's it's so strange and it's interesting because I've obviously I'm in the publishing industry I read books I listen to so many podcasts and authors talking about their experiences but there's such a difference between hearing and also talk about seeing your book for the first time and then experiencing it yourself like it's just yeah surreal I think is the best word for it Mm. I just imagine it must feel like you sort of observe the ring, you know, if you work in publishing or if you've been like a reader that you observe, you know, those are the authors there doing their thing. And suddenly people are, are sort of not observing, but, you know, they're they're engaging with your work. And that must be both an exciting thing and also, I imagine, quite nerve wracking at times as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I have so much sympathy for my authors now. <laughs> <laughs> Because I now understand exactly what they're going through and how strange it is opening yourself up to this kind of just sort of feedback, like whether Mm. it's positive or negative. Because, I mean, speaking for myself, like I wrote this book completely by myself, didn't show it to anybody uh, for a while until a very, very close friend of mine requested to read it, actually, when I was talking about it. Didn't think anything would happen, didn't think it would go anywhere. It was kind of hidden away on my laptop and now it's printed and people are reading it and and hopefully going to buy it and then engage with it in whatever way they want to. And, And that's just so, so, so bizarre. It's so interesting, I find, the relationship with writing and an audience, that relationship between the two, because I think quite often I would tell people, oh, I write for myself, but that was a complete lie. I I was writing for an intended audience. I was writing for somebody to read it. Mm. And I always knew that. I always knew that I was doing it. But I think it's quite, um, 
I don't know what the right word for it is, but I think it's quite embarrassing maybe sometimes to admit that you are writing for an intended audience because you want to appear cool and sort of edgy and say, no, I'm just, you know, writing is just for me. It's just something that I do for myself. But having actually now seen that I have an audience mm. <laughs> and that there are some people reading the book and, and hopefully more when it gets published, like that's weird. And that's something that I don't know how you prepare yourself for. You just mm. kind of have to go through it. Yes, there's an interesting thing there in that sort of playoff between how authors express, you know, I write for me, but actually that there is always this, even if you're alone in a room sort of typing away, there is the want or the desire for eventually outside readers to come in and enjoy that. Sorry, I've realised because I completely derailed us. We should be starting with you and with the books that you have enjoyed over the years. And I want to start by going back to your childhood Am I right in saying you grew up in Birmingham? Yes, you are. I love Birmingham, even though some people might say it has the worst accent in the United Kingdom. I do not believe that for one second. <laughs> I'm super proud of where I come from. And, and it's only been a recent thing because for a long time in my life, it was like, oh, Birmingham is like everyone hates it. And people talk about it in this kind of, you know, quite negative way. And then I sort of grew up, I think, out of that and was like, actually, do you know what? Birmingham is great. And so I've come to be very proud of both Birmingham and that very specific place that I come from. Mm. Yeah, exactly. It's a fantastic city. So you grew up in Birmingham. What was life like for you? And when did you discover books? I have this <laughs> very funny memory of being around six or seven. And my auntie, who was 10 years older than me, was at college and she was doing an English A-level and she had, and I can't remember which one it is now, I think it must have been Frankenstein. And she's reading this book and she's talking about how hard it is. And I, as a six, seven-year-old, was like, I could read that book. <laughs> <laughs> and she gave it to me and I don't remember taking in anything on the page but I remember coming to her a week later and giving it back to her and saying I read the whole thing and I actually had sat down and read the whole thing even if there were words in there that I didn't understand and I didn't quite grasp what was happening but I gave the book back to her and that's like the earliest memory I have of sitting down and reading a book and since then I became known as like the book person in the family and so my other auntie she would often go to car boot sales on the weekend, it was this thing that she loved doing, just going around and buying small objects. Like I remember her first house was filled with so much dolphins. Oh. Like there was a craze, there was a craze, I think in the early 2000s of just like dolphins everywhere. And so she had, you know, dolphin lampshades and dolphin posters and art on the wall. And she had all kinds of little ornaments and she would go to car boot sales to buy them. And every time she went, she'd come back and she'd have like a box of books for me. So I remember she bought me uh, the Animorphs collection and she, she told me this, incredible story of how she'd ripped off this little boy who was standing there and his parents went around and the box was for 15 quid but she paid him like five pounds I think and she <laughs> she presented it to me as this like massive win and I was like I feel so terrible for that boy like because he's about to get you know shouted out by his parents but um she bought me so so many books from those car boot sales and then yeah I, I read Animorphs and Goosebumps oh, I loved Goosebumps R.L. Stein mm. I don't think we give him enough credit he was the Stephen King for children you know, of my generation. And I remember reading those horrific, horrifying, terrifying, scary stories in the dark and like not being able to sleep. And I was so astounded by what you could do with books. And I read Lemony Snicket. Oh, Lemony Snicket, I think, had maybe the biggest influence on me because mm. it kind of taught me that it was cool to be smart. That was the main takeaway mm. from those books for me because you had these three children 
And the way that they defeated the adult villains was just by outsmarting them at every mm. single turn. And I obviously related a lot to Klaus because he loved books, but I also related a lot to Violet, I think, the sister. But I remember having, that was having a, a massive impact on me. And I remember reading, I think, like a BuzzFeed article that came out last year or the year before where it talked about Lemony Snicket being kind of dark literature for kids and how we don't mm. do that anymore. And we don't seem to allow children to exist in dark spaces. Anyway, sorry, I'm rambling. <laughs> no, 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 not, not at all. No, this is exactly what it's about. That's very interesting that I certainly agree adults in particular are bad for seeing a book or a story and thinking, oh, actually, that looks a bit too dark or sinister for my child. And children are hardier than we think. And it's funny because we all have a memory of being children and either reading things maybe that might have been even a bit too old for us or even like watching sort of scary films. And it's that tempting thing that when you're an adult to sort of limit the child. But actually, children really, you know, from the books we have in our shop, children really respond well to those stories that don't necessarily hide away from certain things. You know, it's not necessarily sort of grotesquely done, but you know, that it's open and honest with them. They seem to respond really well to that. I remember one of my favourite books from my childhood, and I still have a copy somewhere around here, is called The Stolen, and I think it's by Alex Shearer. I can't, I don't know if that's his name, actually. But it's a story about children who have their literal childhoods stolen from them by riches. And it's terrifying. And it was so, like, it scared me so much as a kid, because all I could think was my God, what if that happened to me? What if one day I woke up and I was a really old person about to die? Because that's what happens to these kids. And obviously it's a children's book, so everything ends happy. It's all wrapped up, but it was such a terrifying book. And I remember I kept taking it out of the library just to keep reading it over and over again. Interesting. And then I just bought a copy when I was an adult, like a secondhand copy from eBay or something, because it's just such an incredible story. And I just remember being so moved by it. And I, I was always really moved by the darker stories. Like I always found myself really attracted to them because maybe it was that initial reading of Frankenstein that did it for me. <laughs> I mean, what I love that as a sort of, you know, as the first book you remember reading, to be six or seven reading Frankenstein. It's like... And not understanding it, not comprehending no. it at all. <laughs> no, but I love the fortitude there of, because, you know, most kids, understandably, even me now as an adult, if I cracked open a book, and I was thinking, oh, a lot of these words I do not understand. I'd be tempted to pull it to the sides and, you know, move on to something that suits me. I love the fact that you sat there and diligently were like, I'm going to consume this book. You know, it's impressive. Impressive until you kind of understand that I think I was trying to one-up my auntie. Well, yes, that's true, yeah. <laughs> I to show her that I was just as good as her or maybe even better. But... That sort of reading ahead, I remember I have this distinct memory of being in like year two or year three and talking to my English teacher and we were just talking about some stuff, uh, a book or whatever, and I said the words, you know, this is quite melancholy, isn't it? And I met melancholy and she laughed so hard because I'd obviously just seen the word written and didn't know how to pronounce it. She said, I think you mean melancholy. And I, I was embarrassed at the time, but... As an adult, when I tell that story to some of, you know, anyone that I meet, they're like, oh, God, the same thing happened to me. I was a kid and I was reading words that I just had never heard before. Yeah, it is nice to know that other people have had had that same experience. Yeah, so you were a big reader as a child then. And as you said, your aunt was sort of feeding this reading with, you know, sort of collecting books and things like that. 
sort of fast forward to today, obviously, I imagine both in terms of personal interest, but also for your job, a lot of reading is involved. I understand that you probably can't mention things that you've read as part of your job, but in terms of a last book that you've read or a recent book that's really stuck with you, is there anything that comes to mind? Oh, absolutely. So I read this book called The Incarnations by Susan Barker, and it's published by Transworld here in the UK. And it was published, I think, in 2014. And uh, my friend, who I'm very, very close with, she read it around that time. I think it became Waterstones Book of the Month as a paperback, and she happened to be working at Waterstones. So she picked it up and she read it. And she told me it was one of the best books she'd ever read. And it sort of was on my list of books to buy but just kept not getting to the top, like just kept staying there. And then this year in January, I was doing, I won't lie to you, I was taking advantage of that 50% sale that Waterstones did on their hardbacks. We've heard about it. We've heard about it. (laughs) We know, we know, yeah. I was on the website and I was buying quite a lot of hardbacks, I won't lie to you. (laughs) And I saw this in my wish list on Waterstones and I saw, I'm I'm just going to buy it. So I did. And then told my friend about it and she said please 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 just read it so I did and I spent maybe four days in this book absolutely thrilled I can't explain to you the the joy the exhilaration of reading such a talented like impressive writer she had me from the first page Susan had me from the first page I just <laughs> and on the face of it it's a book about a taxi driver in China I believe and he is in Beijing and he's driving around and then one day he finds a letter in his car and it's from somebody professing to be his soulmate across times and that they've lived in previous times together and this person is telling him I'm going to tell you I am your biographer so I'm going to tell you about all these lives that we've lived together and then you're going to understand that we are meant to be with one another and it's insane because you read that and you think, oh my God, he's got like a stalker, right? He's got this mysterious stalker who knows about his wife and his kid. But the way it unveils and like it goes back in time and it shows you these lives that these two people have lived together. The writing is just beautiful. And she got me gasping uh, a couple of times because I just didn't see things happening. And then I, I think I cried at the end. And I, when I finished that book, I just sort of, I I put it to the side and I typed out on WhatsApp, like just like an essay to my friend. And it must have been like one o'clock in the morning on like a Thursday night or whatever. So she was asleep and she woke up in the morning and she was like, I told you, I told you years ago, this is an incredible book. And so now I tell everyone I meet about it. It's been about a month since I finished it. And I've told every single person I've come across, including you now. It's an incredible, incredible book. And through us, our listeners as well. So they all know about the book now. I love stories like that because it's a common thing with I think readers of all ages of someone's told you about a book you've gone or oh, put it on the list I'll read that one day and then when you come to read it you're sort of angry at past you for having waited so long you know why did I not pick up that book at the time I love that that you know for years your friend had been saying you know <laughs> read this book and you had been oh yeah cool I will one day and it was the Waterstones 50% off hardback sale that got you there that got me there and it was it was a full price paperback so it wasn't even as if it was discounted yeah. but I'll tell you what I did oh, okay. which is a little bit insane and I've only ever done it for one other book in my entire life is I went onto eBay and I bought the hardback because I wanted oh. I wanted the hardback so much so oh, I paid some wow. secondhand seller like five pounds for this beautiful beautiful hardback and I've only ever done that for a little life 
which had exactly the same experience yeah of like oh I could talk about that book I think forever that book just I've never read anything like it I don't think I'll ever read anything like it again it had me just I was reading it in the morning before work I was reading it at lunchtime I was reading it after I got back from work I couldn't stop myself but also I was enjoying it so much that I tried to stop myself I cried maybe like eight nine times I've just never had such a visceral experience in a book and I can see its flaws and I can see that some people might say it's emotional manipulation, although then I would question, isn't every piece of art emotional manipulation? I can see why people don't like it. But for me, it really just shoved itself into my heart and hasn't left since. Wow. Beautiful book. Funny enough, one of my questions was going to be, you know, talking about the incarnation. If you're going to sell the book to me as a bookseller, you, you know, what, what would you say? You've already done that. And it's interesting that you mention A Little Life because I've had... So many friends say to me, Jack, have you read A Little Life? And I go, no, I haven't, but I will one day. And of course, To Paradise has come out recently and I'm thinking, oh, you know, it's probably about time I read A Little Life. And now I'm feeling this is like the sign that I should now start reading it because it's been <laughs> it's been out for what, 10 years now? It's been out for a while. I didn't get to it straight away. I, I have to be honest with you. I picked it up because I think I was listening to a podcast and somebody on that podcast said this changed my life and I thought I respect your opinions I trust you so I picked it up and didn't think anything of it didn't even touch it for months it just sort of sat there because it's so big it's kind of intimidating and then one day I just thought all right I'm gonna read you and you better be good (laughs) and I read it in a week which is a little bit insane now looking back because I don't think I could read a book that big in a week ever and just could not stop talking about it at work and then bought a copy I think for a couple of my friends because I just was like you have to you Mm. have to read this and funnily enough one of my very very good friends she read that book and she filmed herself (laughs) (laughs) filmed herself reading the last 50 pages or 75 pages and obviously the the most emotionally distressing pages of the book and all you can see, it's like a time lapse and you can just see her bottom, bottom lip quivering as she gets to the end and then she just starts crying. <laughs> oh. I should have laughed, but I was like, that's what I was doing, except I didn't film myself. <laughs> no, I love I love the foresight to film yourself. I don't know, it's reading as performance art. Like, you know, I'm going <laughs> to record my emotional reaction to this book. So talking about those two books, would either of those tie into my next question, which is um, a rather big one, a book that changed your life? Would you pick either of those titles or is there something else that you would highlight as a book that changed your life? Can I pick two? Is that oh, my life changed twice? As many as you want. <laughs> as many as you want. Go crazy. Um, the first book that fundamentally altered the way that I see books and publishing and writing was White Teeth by Zadie Smith which I picked up because, again, a very, very good friend of mine had read all of Zadie's books up until that point, which I think there were four out and then she released her fifth one afterwards. So I came to Zadie Smith very, very late and I read White Tooth. And again, it's quite a chunky book. I think it's like 500 pages. And I, again, read it in about a week because I found her writing to just be so astonishing, just I don't know. I'm envious of writers like that who are just Mm. on the page, are able to construct such beautifully curated sentences where it feels like every word is so specific and so precise. I don't know how they do it because that's not how I write. (laughs) And I, I loved her writing, but 
it wasn't so much the writing of it or the experience of reading such a really good book because I've had that experience again with you know Donna Tott for example I she's an incredible writer and I love I love her books but the reason this book changed altered my life so much was because it sort of made me realize that books could be written about people like me because the book centers itself on a Bangladeshi man and his family and you know the implosion of his life if you will and it follows a generation Mm -hmm. the the children that are brought up in that world that has you know been created after this implosion and I just thought oh my god this is like because I in Birmingham my parents live next to a Bangladeshi family who were like whose dad was kind of exactly like the dad in this book and I just thought my god this is about me this is this is about us this is about South Asian people and I I was so taken by that and I don't know what kind of person I would be if I hadn't read White Teeth when I read White Teeth because it really got me thinking about non-white authors and it sent me on a journey to go find Mm. them because it sort of made me think that there are these writers that I'm just not seeing and why am I not seeing them and it kind of made me want to work in publishing it kind of made me want to be a better writer like it really just pushed me on so I'm I'm so grateful to White Teeth for existing and then the the second book is The Reluctant Fundamentalist by Mohsin Hamid which I committed a cardinal sin here, which is that I watched the film first. And I, I apologize to readers across the world <laughs> for doing that. But I, I had no idea the book even existed until I saw the film. And I only watched the film because I'm a massive fan of Riz Ahmed. And I like that film. I think it's a good film. I think it's got its flaws and some of it is a little bit, uh, okay. But the book was incredible. And in a very similar way, that white teeth, taught me that I do not have to just read books about white people. Mm. The relevant fundamentalist taught me I do not just have to read books about non-white people who aren't Muslims. There are books about Muslims and there are books about specifically Pakistani Muslims, you Mm. know, and that really got me because then I I went back and read all these other books and he's just such a fantastic writer and he's got another book coming out in August and I'm I'm so excited for it because I think he's an incredible writer. And that I think happened after I read White Teeth but not so long after I read White Teeth, like maybe within the same year. Oh, okay. Within this year, I had these two books that just completely, like fundamentally changed me. And sometimes I think back in a sort of sliding doors moment, like what might have happened if I just didn't read those books? Like, where would I be? What would I be doing? And it's insane to think that, like a book did that to me. (laughs) Yes, yeah. And do you ever feel as well, like, do you ever wonder if, you know, the books you were reading as a, a kid in those early days, do you ever wonder as well if maybe you had seen yourself represented earlier on? I mean, maybe you did, maybe you didn't, I don't know. You talk about that sliding doors moment. I mean, do, do you ever sort of think, oh, you know, even though these books had that wonderful effect on you, do you ever feel, why was it then? Like, why didn't it happen before? Is that something that you sort of mull over or? Yeah, I, I do think about it sometimes. And I, I don't recall being a kid and thinking, why isn't there someone like me in this until mm. I read Harry Potter? <laughs> okay, and I yeah. sort of got until, how old must I have been when I read the first one? Maybe like nine or ten? Yeah. So I'd read so many books up until that point, but it had never occurred to me that I was never reading somebody with a Pakistani name or somebody mm. with uh, my skin colour or a Muslim person. I just don't recall it ever occurring to me until yeah. I read yeah. Harry Potter and then I thought, oh, this is weird because it's a school and yes. and it's a school in Britain and I uh, my community was very South Asian and Muslim so I went to school surrounded by brown children and brown teachers and brown parents 
And it always, always struck me when I was reading Harry Potter. And like, obviously, I love those books, you know, when I was reading them. I don't think I could ever go back to them now because there is always that fear that they're not as good as I remember them being. Yeah. Yeah. With, with every children's book, I feel like there's that fear. But I do remember thinking, oh, there's no one like me in this. And maybe it was like the fourth book where those two twins or those two sisters come. Um, mm. They're Indian sisters. And I think they're dancing with Harry and Ron. I can't really remember now. But it was at that point where I was like, oh my God, there's two of them. But then they never go on to do anything or be yeah. part of any kind of narrative. They're just kind of there. And I think that was when I sort of started thinking a lot about what kinds of books am I reading and who is mm. in those books? And, you know, are they representative of me? Even though at 13, 14, 15, I didn't have the language to talk about it. Yeah. I distinctly remember having that conversation with myself and with my friends you know we would read mm. books together and, and talk about why are we not uh, with harry potter like we were just like you know it's so insane to us that there's no there's no muslim kids you know and then yeah. i think we we kind of were like oh maybe it's too much of a theological issue like maybe because you know wizardry and magic and islam and is, is okay. yeah yeah uh, maybe we were going a bit too far to try and excuse <laughs> <laughs> excuse the laugh <laughs> I think that's being incredibly forgiving, but yeah. Yeah, it was really when I was at university, I think, that I had those. I think as many people do, you have those kind of mm. revelatory conversations where you're like, wow, I was never thinking about this in this kind of way, and I should be thinking about it in this way, and maybe let's go do some research and think about stuff. Yeah. And I remember I became very vocal about the fact that all of the syllabuses just didn't have non-white people mm. on them. And my one proud moment is when I was talking to one of the lecturers and he said, you're absolutely right. And then he added Katsuo Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go to like the SFF module right. in, it, in the English degree. And I was like, ah, oh, success. Yes. Um, <laughs> but then I left. So I never. Because right. <laughs> <laughs> I'd already done that module and he added it like after I'd done it. And I was like, well, this is really frustrating because I, I would love to have engaged with that book on an yep. intellectual level. I love that book and I think it's great. And I would have loved to explore it more, but that was my one shining moment, I think, where I, I felt like I got through to someone. But really, yeah, it was kind of Harry Potter onwards. Before then, I was just ignorance is bliss, you know? You just kind of... Yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah. And I saw recently you published a list, didn't you? And it started with a really interesting introduction. It was 50 men of colour in publishing list on the website platform. And, you know, you talk about how, you know, I can say as a bookseller, you know lists everywhere lists of you know books to watch out for in march books to watch out for you know in this year and about how those lists are sort of compiled and then you know you've created this one of books sort of coming out this year so that's something you know as you said you sort of taken through into your to your work in publishing and now linking through to you as as a writer has that influenced when you sit down and you started writing a book let's say like good intentions or any of the other things you've written has that been in your mind about, you know, who's being represented in fiction? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it didn't happen for a while. When I first started writing, I wrote white characters because I don't, I don't ever remember thinking that I could write about myself and not in a way that I thought I can't write about myself, but it just never yeah. occurred to me that I could. And I think there's a distinction there. I wasn't stopping myself. I just never thought that I could. And then I was after I had that moment with white teeth and, the reluctant fundamentalist that I thought I can write about people like me and I'm going to and so all my writing after that is very much like it's so fascinating as well like because all the protagonists are if you can call anyone a protagonist in my book they are you know South Asian Pakistani Muslim 
and they tend to be men. And so a lot of people often ask me, are you writing about yourself? <laughs> Which I find, I find to be a very limiting, but also very fascinating question. Limiting yeah. because it kind of seems to, I mean, it doesn't even imply it. It very much is in the question. I can't write about anyone but myself. But then it's a very mm. interesting question because it kind of asks a much broader question of what do we expect from writers who don't fit into a white, straight, cis, male mold, if you will. Because it happens to white women, it happens to queer mm. white women, it happens to queer men, white men. Uh, but also, like, from my perspective, it happens to non-white people almost all the time, where we, you know, expect them to. I was reading this fascinating article by, I think it was a profile on Monica Ali, whose book is coming out in February. And she was talking about how she'd written Brick Lane, which is very much could be said to be a book about her. And then after that, she did not write stuff about South Asians. You know, she kind of moved away from that. And she was accused. She was accused of selling out. And she was asked questions about why are you writing about someone other than yourself? And it's fascinating. Yeah. And she said that that plus the, you know, the fact that Brick Lane did so well and her other three books did not as well at all really sent her into a depressive spiral in terms of her creativity. So I do think sometimes we have to be careful about the kinds of questions we're asking authors mm. because yeah anyway that's a whole other topic but yeah my good intention <laughs> is to write more about people like me because i just don't think we often get to see them and also mostin hamid is such an incredible writer but he's not writing people like me he's writing maybe people like himself if i could say that but he's writing about people from pakistan and i was born in britain i consider mm. myself to be british but i also consider myself to be pakistani and muslim and i'm a child of immigrants and i don't see those stories being told so now a lot of my writing is in that mold where it's about a very specific kind of person who is like me because i am writing for myself really to throw back to an earlier question yeah, throw back there, yeah. earlier statement, i am writing for me but when i say that i'm writing the kinds of books that i want to read yeah and if they are the books that I want to read, then there are other people out there who want to read them because I would never think of myself as like a such a unique person that there's only one of me. But yeah, it, that intentionality of wanting to be more inclusive or representative or, or diverse mm. or whatever kind of buzzword you choose to describe what I'm doing, that always goes into my writing now. I'm always thinking about what is the kind of person who I don't see being represented in stories. And so, you know, in book three, for example, my agent is going to kill me for saying this, but I am writing about a group of male friends and I'm writing mm. about male friendship between South Asian men. Yeah. That's just not something I've ever seen before. And male friendship and friendship in particular really fascinates me because I've always thought that friendships don't often get the same spotlight as romantic relationships, if you will. So once again, like Good Intentions was about anti-blackness and an interracial romance that didn't involve a white person. I am now marrying, again, two concepts that I love, which is South Asian men and the representation of them and male friendships. Yeah. I just want to write about people like me, really. Simply, simply put. Yes. You know, as well as writing of stories that interest you, like the friendship thing, which again, I saw, it always feels very slightly weird and stalkerish when you say to an author, because I saw on your Twitter that you had posted, I think it was to an article about the intensity of friendship and how they can even be like friendship breakups and they can be just as powerful as, a, you know, as a romantic breakup and have as many repercussions. But that's talking about your third book, which I'm sure will be great. <laughs> so uh, one thing I was going to say, yeah, really interesting when you talk about how certain authors are sold, this must be about 
you because I was recently watching a video about Marilyn Monroe <laughs> and about how, you know, Arthur Miller wrote a play about her quite soon, I think, after um, she died and then also later on in life. And, you know, a big literary figure like Arthur Miller, I don't feel it's really spoken much about, oh, well, here he is talking about his life or things like that. Or I remember someone saying about like Philip Roth, like no one goes on about the fact that, you know, Roth was obviously using like personal experiences. There's not that same sense of, you know, if you're a white male author, you can just write about what you want. And it could be about something really personal, or it could be about something completely else, but either is fine and it's not really talked about or mentioned or it's not seen like worth mentioning and this does link into a thing because obviously you work in publishing you're an assistant editor and you're a writer as well one thing i'm really interested is how different have you found the brains of you the editor and you the writer i mean the easiest way to describe it is it's two overlapping circles which i think is called a venn diagram and i don't know why i didn't just say that because there are things in the middle which cross over on both of them but as a writer bizarrely and I wonder if this will change when the book comes out. But as a writer, I am never thinking about the market. I'm never thinking about what is topical, what is trendy. And again, this might change when the book comes out. But I'm not thinking about what anybody wants from me. Because yeah. I was never a person that anybody wanted anything from. I was just somebody writing. But as an assistant editor, you're always thinking about the market. You're constantly thinking about right. what do people want? What do people need? What do they want to read? And you know, is this topical? Is it trendy? Is it going to hit? And those two things are so fascinating because I think one of them is driven by commercial capitalism of like, there is a market, we have to sell books, we need to make a profit, blah, 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 yeah. blah. The other one is driven purely at the moment by what makes me happy, what makes me enjoy what I'm doing. And it would be really interesting. Uh, and this is so weird because I'm talking about myself, but it would be really interesting to see whether that changes when the book comes out and then people like just like Monica Ali was talking about what do people then expect from you what kinds of stories do they expect you to write but I've always found that really interesting especially since selling the book and being in the commercial sphere of publishing through my writing that still never changed because I wrote my second book without ever thinking about oh if somebody reads good intentions what are they going to think I'm going to write next I just wrote it okay yeah and even with the third book I'm still not thinking Oh, is this what they're going to expect from me? Is this what they're going to blah, 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 blah? I'm just thinking, oh, I want to write about male friendships and I want yep. to write about South Asian men. Bam, bam, bam. Let's get it done. And I hope that that never changes. I hope that I continue to write yes. without ever thinking about an intended audience in that specific capitalist way. Yeah. And I hope that I just keep writing the way that I've always written, but I don't know. I don't know if that'll change. But that's the biggest difference between those two brains, as you call them. Okay. Right. Yeah. And you talk about you know, bam, 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 get it done. Am I right? Did I see somewhere that you wrote Good Intentions in six weeks? I did, and my agent loves to talk about it because she's fascinated. Oh, sorry. I'm repeating something that you're, like, thinking, oh, God, this question again. Um, no, I'm, you know what I'm doing? I'm doing faux modesty. I'm trying to be humble, but mm. actually, I wrote Good Intentions in six weeks because I was in a time in my life where I didn't have anything else to do. <laughs> Which is... The easiest way to talk about it, I was living in a very isolated place and I wasn't surrounded by many friends or family um, wow. because I, I'd moved to a job and that job just wasn't in a place that I'd ever lived before. So I didn't know anybody Right. and writing became a safe haven, as, as I think the, the sort of cliche goes, but the cliche is the cliche because it's true for so many people. 
And so when I say six weeks, people people are always like, oh my God, that's incredible. And I'm like, mm. no, no, no. It's six weeks because I was spending four hours a day writing, you know? And yeah. I'm also always wanting to say, it was six weeks to write this one particular novel, but it took me eight years to get here. Yes. Like I was yeah. writing book after book after book yeah. after book. And it was eight years of practice to be able to sit for six weeks and write something that somebody else read and said, this is good and this yeah. will sell and people will love it. That's the truest answer of that. The six weeks is just a headline. <laughs> okay. okay, I see. I must say that does make me feel better because when I read that, I thought, God damn it, he's so talented in that, you know, like six weeks. That's amazing. Although I must say, actually, you're unfair to yourself earlier because you said, you know, Zadie Smith is one of those writers where every word you th- feel like it just clicks and it feels, you know, and you were like, oh, that's not how I write. But one thing that has really struck me about Good Intentions is, it's beautifully written. You know, I picked it up, I started reading it, and quite early on, the best way I can describe it is there's no, like, bumps in the road. You know, I think in all books, you occasionally come across something and you think, oh, I actually think that's interesting. It's like a little, that doesn't quite, like, click for me, but it's very smooth sailing. Yeah, it's really nice. And sorry, I know it must be really awkward when someone you don't know is like, this is really <laughs> lovely, because how do, how do you react to that? How do you say, like, oh, thanks, yeah, it's... <laughs> No, no, like, like, thank you so much for saying that because it, it really means a lot. Like, it means so mm. much, and it, and it, and it is a little awkward and it is a little uncomfortable because you're sort of sitting there listening to somebody say that this thing that you wrote is good, but you wrote it because you thought it was good. You're not all too surprised, but then you also are surprised. There are so many conflicting emotions, but I think I'm just going to settle on the warmth in my chest emotion at the moment, which is just thank you for saying that. Yes. And also what really struck me as well is the human relationships in it. Really just lovely from like, you know, those early sort of blossomings of romance to friendships, just the human connection in it is is brilliantly done. And so it gets me very excited when you say that your third one. I love how I have no idea what the second one is about, which is like, but the, the third one is about friendships and stuff because that makes me excited because that's something that's done really well in Good Intentions, which it's out on the 3rd of March. Yes. You know, we're coming up to publication day, which must be marked on your calendar somewhere because that's a real life-changing event, I suppose. You know, that's when your book is officially out there, you know, in the world. But there's been a lot of talk about it already and I think it will be very well received. It's a brilliant debut. Thank you for joining us here at Mostly Books Meets. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Honestly, my God, I'm going to go about the rest of my day now filled with joy in my heart and a spring in my step. Oh, (laughs) that's exactly what we're here to do. So thank you so much. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.